Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the sea spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the sky Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate On the issue of 21st century slavery Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionists and actionists Johanna Nalaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today, we'll be covering the Milwaukee Uprising, the DEA ruling that cannabis has no medicinal value, Bill Clinton's call for an end to mass incarceration, the same mass incarceration he created. Trump's call for more cops, more jails, and more prisons. And Pennsylvania Attorney General Kathleen G. Kane, who was convicted of perjury, obstruction, and other crimes. Also, Corrections Corporation of America, the nation's largest prison company, is to build a massive detention facility for women and children seeking asylum. Wyckoff Police Chief Benjamin Fox has been demoted to patrolman and will serve a 180-day suspension after acting Bergen County Prosecutor Goubert Gould launched an investigation into the email that has been released by the American Civil Liberties Union, New Jersey Chapter. Three of the four indicted former Cobb County juvenile court workers have entered guilty pleas in connection with allegations that hundreds of thousands of dollars were paid on fraudulent invoices, according to Cobb District Attorney Vic Reynolds. And with all these predictions we've made about the come true and coming true, abolitionists are starting to look like Miss Cleo 2.0. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Milwaukee, Wisconsin resident William A. Reed, 25, who was convicted in 1998 on narcotics charges, and then again while in prison, was convicted on March 9, 2005, of reckless homicide and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Avery was released from prison in May 2010, and on September 23, 2010, his conviction was and sentence were vacated and the charges were dismissed. Our abolitionist in profile will be Luis Gonzaga Pinta de Gama, uh, also known as Luis Gama. 
June 21st, 1830, August 24th, 1882. Abolitionist, journalist, lawyer, and poet. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. If you'd like to join us and share a comment or question, just call us at 1-641-715-3660. The access code is 549-032-POUND. Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the compass line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? I'm okay. How are you doing today, Brother Max? Um, when I get on New Evolutionist Radio, brother, I become a whole different person, it seems like, because I just pull adrenaline up to do the damn thing no matter what. So I've ripped to rip a hole into this today. <laughs> right now. That. A lot has been happening, and we do have uh, Brother Johanan uh, on the line oh, with geez. us as well. Peace. Peace. Welcome, Peace. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. I'm like you. No matter what else is going on, once you uh, once you hear that music, once you know it's time, it's time. So let's bang Amen. on this beast for the next two hours. You know, I did want to mention, uh, if you don't mind, Scotty, I want to give a, a couple of events that I'd like people to come to. Oh, uh, what I'll do you mean if I don't speaker. mind? And I'm hoping you'll post uh, post those upcoming events to the BTR community. Oh, I certainly will. You know, I tried to log in today, but my name is still under the name that you gave me, and I'd like to be able to change it. And I couldn't figure out how, so I wasn't able to post just yet. But I am registered in now and signed in and all of that. And in a short period of time, I'll be inviting all my friends to come and join us there as well. But uh, I just want to mention that I'll be the keynote speaker at Missouri Couture's 13th Annual Statewide Conference Saturday, September 24, 2016. That's 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Southeast Community Center, 63rd in Jackson, Kansas City, Missouri. The event is free, but RSVP is required. So contact them at MissouriCure.org. And then I'll be the featured speaker at Chronic 2016, the Carolinas Human Rights Organizing Conference, October 21st through October 23rd in Asheville, North Carolina, at the Lutherich Camp and Conference Center. You can contact them to find out what times I'll be speaking at. That's chronic at chronicsscnc.org or call them at 864-735-5520. Just wanted to get that out there because, you know, I don't get out too much these days and what I do is highly important, and I'm expecting to give the speeches of my life at both events, so you should be there if it's at all possible. There you go. Well, <clears throat> of course, I will be there at the Missouri Cure uh, State Conference uh, late September that you mentioned first, so that will be, um, I'll be there hosting a uh, a workshop on uh, false convictions and mm. uh, talking about exoneration so every week that we discuss the rider of the modern underground railroad um, you know and all the information that we research and share with folks about the uh, di uh, district attorneys around the country uh, attorneys general uh, state attorneys these different prosecutors and people that are in positions elected officials that are in positions of power to help you know, facilitate these exonerations and vacate uh, vacating these people's sentences. Um, you know, this is what we talk about uh, from a political standpoint. Your vote, you know, voting down the ticket, not just going straight Democrat or straight Republican or you know whatever, just picking everything blindly, but knowing, like, really producing these candidates and then knowing who they are and then having you know your your agenda as a part 
that comes part and parcel with your vote. Like, look, I'm big into getting uh, uh, innocent people who've been wrongfully convicted out of prison. So for my vote, I need to get, you know, like they had the uh, conservative had the contract with America. They had a whole conservative group that basically took over all of Congress that made anybody that was running on a Republican ticket sign a contract that said they would not raise taxes on a certain group of people. And at some point, they had several people elected in Congress that had agreed and signed signed that contract. And we need to be in that same position. So I, I remember that. About exonerees, I remember yeah. that. That was during the first Clinton uh, regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grover Nor Grover Norquist, I yeah, think was his name. Yeah, and uh, what, what, that, what, but, what's your boy name that be that was running around with Al Sharpton for a while, giving Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich was speaker Gingrich, of the house yeah, at that he's time. He's big in there too. So I mean, it's possible to use the vote to control things and and create the reality that you know suits you and your community. And we definitely need to be doing that. So that'll be a part of what we're talking about with the. Exoneration uh, a workshop at the Missouri Cure Conference next uh, next month. So be yeah. ready, people. First, you know, this will be you and I meeting for the first time. So it'll be the first time that you and I uh, share the stage and actually met. So that's going to be a celebratory p- period and it's going to be a bombshell. But then you also throw into the mix that tribal rain is coming in to do poetry as well. So between the three of us, it's going to just be on fire right there. Lives will be changed right there that day. And I want to uh, show my gratitude to Brother Keith Brown L. of Missouri Cure, who put this together for us and invited us to come participate in this Human Rights Conference. Yes, sir. We've got to remember uh, uh, Sister Brianna Dobbs, too. She's another one that's powerful in this, in this local uh, organization and uh, organizing uh, Missouri Cure events. Um, she's also out here, and, and I don't too often see her out here trying to get no shine, but she does a lot of work, too. Indeed. Shout out to my sister. I'm looking forward to giving her a hug when we get up in there. Uh, it's definitely going to be on fire in Missouri, and uh, abolitionists will be in the house, which is something unusual because most of these conferences and town hall meetings don't include abolitionists. They only offer you one perspective that's either, well, actually two perspectives that's either reform or no reform. You don't hear anybody talking about abolition. So basically, it's just everybody already in agreement coming together to talk about what they're already in agreement about. Yeah, I remember clearly at the uh, at the at the event last year um, that you know abolitionism. I was really kind of the only one talking about it in any of the com- the uh, committee meetings that I sat in on, and then in the general assembly, you know, it just uh, it got to a point where there were several people there who were who actually left out of workshops that I was sitting in, and one uh, old lady that was some kind of a secretary or something in the uh, Missouri Cure organization. She was holding a workshop that I was in with Keith Brownell, and uh, we were talking about, you know, things that, that were going to be ineffective that she was proposing. Like, we already know that don't work, you know, and just kind of shooting her down, and that's when she came out with it and called herself hitting us with both barrels, telling us how she uh, came from the corrections industry. I was a, I worked my way up to a supervisor in the prison system, and I have a child in the system, and I know what I'm just, you know, we're like, oh, hell. <laughs> you just told us everything we need to know. <laughs> Not every problem can be solved, but no problem can be solved unless space. That's from uh, James Baldwin, and that is really the truth. You know, How can you expect 
to address an issue where you don't even know what the problem is. You're just mistaking it. In essence, you're just snake oil salesmen who are telling everybody to take this oil and it will cure it, and you don't even know what it is. But here, we're here with an answer. We're telling you exactly what it is, improving it every single day, right here in years of archives on New Abolitionist Radio. It's slavery and human trafficking, legalized by the 13th Amendment, exploited by the federal government, the state governments, the county governments, the city governments, private business, and international corporations. We know exactly what it is. And it's getting worse. It's getting bigger and worse every single day. I got some stats that I pulled out of a hat recently. And uh, some more time during the show, I'll probably share them with everybody. Uh, it was inspired by the article that came out where this white tennis player uh, is not going to court uh, for molesting a autistic child. And the judge says, prison will do no good for him. Will do him no good. So uh, I wanted to show just how this nation is certainly about black and white right now, particularly when it comes down to who is going to prison and who isn't. Should I do that now or wait till later? Come on with it, brother. All right. Let's, let's do some math, okay? This is some addition. 2015, 94% of all state and 97% of all federal felonies end up in a backroom deal plea bargain, a direct and wholesale violation of your Sixth Amendment rights. 2015, 95% of all prosecutors are white and 79% are white men. 2007, 93% of the prison population was made up of males and 77% of inmates were female. Despite only representing a mere 12.7% of the national population, 39% of the 2007 prison population was black. In 2011, among prisoners 18 and 19, black males are imprisoned at more than nine times the rate of white males. Among persons ages 20 to 24, black males were imprisoned at seven times the rate of white males. Black male prisoners aged 65 and older were imprisoned at rates between three and five times those of white males. Among persons aged 60 to 60, the black male imprisonment rate was five times that of white males. Black females were imprisoned at between two and three times the rate of white females. And finally, fact number seven, 2015, African Americans who are only less than 13% of the population and 14% of drug users are not only 37% of the people arrested for drugs, but 56% of the people in state prisons for drug offenses. So there's two things we can glean from these seven facts. One, that implicit bias and institutional racism is practiced at a level which should be considered as a global human rights violation condemned by the entire world. And two, that anyone talking about it's not just black and white thing nonsense doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. Which qualifies is that most people who pipe up and start running their mouths are people that don't know a damn thing about what they're talking about. I mean, it's just, it's as common as, as seeing, you know, anything else out here in society that people that do not read, do not study, do not take advantage of the the equipment and the materials and the internet and everything else we have available for them to study don't even listen to anybody else 
I mean, hell, I listen to an audio book on my way in because I don't have time to read the book. I mean, they could listen to podcasts of New Abolitionist Radio and blame it on us if they get caught if they get caught no. telling something they shouldn't say. But they just won't do it. They watch a bunch of silly stuff on TV, pursue after a bunch of silly things in the day to day life, and get caught up in whatever, and then want to comment, and then call themselves being activists to some extent or speaking up about serious issues that affect millions and millions of people and they're doing so ignorantly and it, and it just makes it even worse because nobody needs to be ignorant in this we day. so clear of the fact that racism is rampant in this country nobody can deny that anymore although they did deny it back in 2012 2013 very heavily but now no one can deny it anymore so basically it's very simple we have this nearly complete majority of white prosecutors sending a vast majority of people of color to prison. It's really just that simple, and the racism is deeply embedded, not only in their hearts, but in their legislation. But the thing about the legislation um, is that it was originally, it really, legislation is what created racism in America, to be honest, because right. everybody that was here had a free shot at claiming land or t selling goods and services and doing different things that you know to create the capitalist and merchant based uh, economy and society that we've come to know but at an early point in the colonial stage of this country what became this country laws were written that forbade the inclusion of anybody outside of white folks and it didn't just forbid other people from doing these from doing any kind of uh, interaction but it also heavily penalized white people for breaking those laws themselves. So it wasn't just like it was from one side, like a situation, say, like the war on drugs, where you just say it's drugs and then you go into black neighborhoods and police them. No, this would be the equivalent of the war on drugs being enforced equally as heavy from white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. Imagine that kind of a country where you had all these white folks at these corporate jobs getting high all day long, getting their doors kicked in at home and at work like black folks and Mexicans and poor people getting kicked in at home and at work. And instead of having 2.5 million people in the prison system, having 6, 7, 8, 9 million people in the prison system caught up in the slave system. So early in the colonial days, the laws were written to stop black folks and, and natives and other races of people that were here from participating in the economy, but it also heavily penalized white folks from participating and interchanging with those folks as well. And that is the law that was written. So yeah, it created um, racism. Yeah, um, specifically if somebody, it was in more than one of the colonies, but if you want to Google what he's talking about, because he's telling you the truth, we do not make up stuff on this program. We are, we, I, I pride myself on being a researcher, and, I'm, and these guys I have worked with for, what, going on four years, and I know the value of their research, but look at the Virginia colony. That is where I have identified in the 1600s where those laws first appeared. And one of the things that really caught my eye is what was the first right that they stripped, quote unquote, uh, uh, black people of, and that was the right to own guns. You couldn't, if a white person came up to you and punched you in the mouth, you couldn't even punch them back. I mean, it was literally written that you could not defend yourself. 
okay, and, and, and a white person couldn't even, if you was one of the lucky free black people, white people couldn't even work for you. You couldn't even hire one. So he telling the truth. Indeed, man. Uh, and today we got a lot of truth for you, Ty. Up in this program here today, man, the news is always, as of late, uh, overwhelming, and we try to pick out what we think might be of the something you really need to know at this point in time. Um, so, Brother Johanna, have you had a chance to go over this week's uh, list that we have in the planning stage? Yes, sir. I've uh, I've been looking through it and have a few links to support what we what we're talking about as well. Where are we uh, where are we starting today, Milwaukee? Uh, yeah, let's start with Milwaukee. I, I know Scotty's been reporting on it as well. Uh, right. And I've been talking about it, and I'm sure you have been too. Uh, so, yeah, let's start with, with, with Milwaukee. Um, Scotty, uh, give us an up-to-date on what you found out so far or what you're aware of, and we'll go from there. Sure, sure no problem. Sure, no problem. But first, I just want to thank uh, uh, one of our regular callers and listeners from uh, 414 who's at Ground Zero. And he called into my program and was telling me what was really what he was seeing there on the ground. Because as I was covering it, I was saying, look, this just occurred. They're saying this, that, and the other. And the police said this, that, and the other. And don't believe a damn thing they said. I said, I don't know if there's video. I want to see the video. Uh, show me the video. I don't believe nothing that come out of slave catcher's mouth. I had to see it with my own eyes, okay? And I had the question, and it, this question has not been answered. Well, let me just give tell people who don't know what happened. You had two black males traveling in a rental car, traveling down the street, and they were pulled over by two cops. Now, I have not, I've yet to identify why were they pulled over. Well, I know why they were pulled over. There are two young black men driving in the car. They were driving while black. But I did not hear anything about, oh, they crossed the double line, or like in Sandra Bland's case, oh, they forgot to turn on the signal. Let me pull them over. You know what I'm saying? None of that. I have not got, or only thing I heard is they saw two suspicious male. Well, ain't that, that fit damn every black male on the, pl on the planet, don't it? It, and in terms of racism and white supremacy and who you're looking to enslave the most. And so they got out, again, these are what I heard reported. They got out the car, ran, and the young man that got uh, killed, I forget his last name, but his first name was Seville. And allegedly he had a gun and he pointed it at the cop and the cop killed him. Again, I still haven't seen the video. We do know video exists. I haven't seen it. They have not released it to the public. The last I heard, the ACLU was trying to get that released. Now, um, the caller uh, called in to Black Talk Radio News, and he was saying the discrepancies. He was mentioning the discrepancies he was hearing in the local news media. First, they said the, the, the young man was shot in the back. Then it changed to he was shot in the chest. And then, you know, the story just kept evolving and what have you. And so that's that's where we stand now. This is the new twist to it. The cop who, the slave catcher, who was trying to catch a slave and killed this man uh, in the process of trying to catch a slave, um, is a, a, we'll just call him an African-American, okay? So this was an African-American slave catcher, 
And um, this African-American slave catcher, information is coming out about him now. A video surfacing of a gangster rap video that he made. And I haven't watched it, so I ain't going to comment on what's in the video. But others were trying, or I've heard that um, he might have been involved in some gang activity. Or there were photos circulating of him throwing up gang signs and stuff. And like the caller pointed out. When Darren Wilson and other, you know, Darren Wilson and, and other slave catchers who have killed people, they, you know, the media does isn't so quick to throw them under the bus. So this is a lesson for all you black slave catchers out there that think that your blue life matters. But they, the media up there, from what the caller was saying, has been throwing the slave catcher under the bus and he not getting a you know the uh treatment that his fellow slave catchers who are not melanated would get so that's all i know right now you know i may be mistaken about how i'm looking at this case but i am so sick and tired of name after name after name of murdered person and we keep focusing on the individual cases, and I don't say we as in you and I and Johanna, but just as in general, we keep focusing on the details and missing the larger story about it, uh, what's going on here. And some of the articles that have come out of this have more or less explained some of that. Max, you know, we have. Out the mil- I'm sorry the to interrupt Guard. you. Max, ahead, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we do have that caller. If you want to ask him any questions, uh, area code four one four. Thanks for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. Go ahead with your question and comment. Uh, give me one second. Let me take it off speaker. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Welcome to oh, New okay. Abolitionist Radio. Oh, thanks for having Round me. Uh, yeah, I was just calling in um, just to build. I guess what I did want to add. Um, like I was uh, mentioning to Scotty, this, uh, I'm not going to say it all started with the uh, gas station situation where we had a, um, now this this gas station is in the same area where the homicide happened, man, just a few blocks from where the first, uh, one of the first incidents happened. It's called the Sherman Park area. So in Milwaukee, we got a long history of, black people not really having nothing to do so in the summertime you know like after like say club closing time like about two o'clock you might have a group of young people up there man just riding around the same area and uh people um the power structure dubbed the cruising they started handing out tickets and you know all of that so people you know usually hang out at the park now i'm talking about the younger kids so it's just the sherman park area is a busy area quote unquote middle class you got a lot of homeowners in the area uh as of late due to the conditions in the city it's kind of been going down like every um just overall the city is going down but so the young kids be in the park so one night they was in the park the park got closed down so they was going to the gas station across the street to get some snacks and the caller um, not the caller one of the young men that was shot at was just on the radio program and he's been actually getting interviewed man by the mainstream media and that's been another whole another layer to the situation but he said that 
the day he was leaving, uh, the spark went to the gas station. All of them had their money in their hand because they said that the owners of the gas station be tripping, man. Kind of like, um, man, we know how them people is. Let's not even play games, man. Them people don't respect us when we go up in there and spend our money. And they treat our kids and our women worse. I'm just going to be honest. Okay, mm -hmm. so now um, the kids was trying to spend their money, man, the guy... Uh, the clerks, I guess, was feeling threatened or whatever. The kids said, I ain't even make it in there. Dude came out, just started letting off shots. Okay, so now, right after that happened, we had a homicide in that area, then like another homicide in that area because what the people had did, the people in the area shut the gas station down, man, started setting up shop in front of the gas station, selling the people the products and stuff that they need that they can get in the gas station. So... When the homicides happened in that area, that killed that whole energy. Okay, so fast forward to the victim getting murdered. Um, the night before that happened, there was five homicides in the city. All right, so uh, y'all got the reports about, you know, whatever happened or whatever. And um, the call, the, the young victim uh, that had got shot at, not the murder victim, but the victim that had got shot at the gas station, he said, man, the reason that the gas station got set on fire was because them damn people up there broke the agreement. And the agreement was that that, man, I'm getting a little wound up. The person, the person that shot at them children was not supposed to be working there, and he was working. Okay. Now, we got a quote-unquote black radio station, um, and they, I don't, I'm getting, let me take a breath. Okay, so on, the, on our radio station, dude had the owner of the gas station on the radio program. A caller called in and like, yo, man, y'all breached the agreement, you know, what's up? Man, the caller, I mean, um, the radio host and the owner just smoothed on the dress that. All right, so they uh, the uh, the victim of the um, the the victim that got shot at uh, on the radio program. He said that um, all the exits was lit on fire. Okay, so he said that the people, um, some of the people from the neighborhood actually went in and got the damn gas station workers out because they were scared. They were scared to come out. Okay, so they went in and got them out, um, and then um, it was 74 fires, though, that, in that whole, in that, that day that the, that the homicide happened. It was 74 fires, okay? And um, I'm going to just be honest with you. I ain't buying none of this crap. Um, you know, I'm just, um, you know, like after seeing it on TV and then being in the middle of it, man, I'm going to just be honest. It's big money on the table. It's big money at play. And I'm just looking at like, well, okay, who stands the game from all of this happening? And uh, I just, you know, if y'all got any questions, anything y'all want to, I'll try to ask them as best as I can. Um, Scotty, you on it? Yeah, I, I don't have any questions. You mentioned that there's no uh, nothing for the youth to do during the summer months, and, and we've seen that as a trend because a lot of the teen uh, centers uh, were closed down, and now all of them across the nation, there's no jobs available, no parks and recreation. Uh, what type of effort is being put into the community out there 
to give them something to do? Anything at all? Uh, I mean, you do have certain pockets. You have a lot of, like, uh, I would call them grassroots community centers. You have uh, different organizations that um, are involved with the, uh, with the children. Um, you have a few churches that are involved, and um, you have uh, they got uh, something through the school program where they send, like, this recreation book out, and you can, they offer a lot of programs uh, through that. Um, but it's not enough. <laughs> Just keeping it real, like right. um, the the children can only do as good as their parents doing, and the parents is messed up here. Now I'm just be honest with you. Um, yeah, this is generations of oppressions that created these conditions. Didn't yeah. Last night, this is generations. Yep. So I mean, the kids are they? It's some stuff. I'm sorry. Did uh, Milwaukee also experience the loss of jobs from manufacturing being shipped overseas for slave wages? Yeah, we had a, it was a big, um, it was a company called A.O. Smith, it was like a, some kind of factory or whatever that was here, I think it was a steel company, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on that, but it was called A.O. Smith, but when that closed down, um, along with some other businesses that I'm probably not familiar with that maybe some of the people a little older than me may be familiar with. But um, once that closed down, that's when I really started to see the shift. You know what I'm saying? It's an overtime thing that occurred where they put these policies into play and left people to their own devices, and their own devices often led to poverty and despair and crime. Um, At this point, from what I understand, Young black males in Milwaukee, uh, more than one in two of them spend time in prison before they're 30 years old. And I also just recently with uh, Sheriff David Clark was issuing warrants to arrest organizers just two years ago uh, for no reason at all, simply because they were organizers in the Black Lives Matter movement when it was first beginning. And uh, oh, yeah. arrest warrants. Were you uh, subject to that? Did they come after you at any point? Nah, man, I'll be low-key on my thing, man. I'm moved by the code, you know what I'm saying? And um, I'm going to just be honest with you, man. You really have to be careful about, man, who you uh, link yourself up with here. Anywhere, hell. You understand what I'm saying, man? Um, yeah, this is a war. You understand what I'm saying? And, w- and one thing that I did peep, though, on the news, because you have some protesters that uh, went to uh, one of the malls here. All right, now these are just some people that, you know, got together and, you know, decided to protest. But on the news, they had these people, the people that was the protesters, they had the protesters, let me not say these people, forgive me for that. The protesters, um, the the news media had the protesters labeled as a group already. Had them labeled as a group and, um, man, basically profiled them right on the little news clip. You know what I'm saying? And, um, like, man, from my observation, uh, you have so many proxy races operating. Um, you, man, I'm talking about, uh, I would just, I feel hopeless right now, man. You understand yeah, what I'm saying? Hopeless, brother. We're at yeah. the time when hopelessness begins to set in, but you know what? That's the time when the tide changes. When you oh, think it's oh, all oh. done and there ain't no hope left, suddenly the sun rises and it's like, whoa. And okay, let me, right now. 
let me let me add this tidbit because I just heard this yesterday. Um, listening to a mainstream uh, radio show, uh, a caller called in from Milwaukee, and she was giving up some of the uh, information on the police. She was at like right after the situation happened, and uh, she was like, "Man, them officers was like." Um, one of you know, one of y'all, one of y'all shot the shot that nigger. You know, one of y'all own people did it. And uh, shit, man, we'll kill as many niggers as we want to in Milwaukee and get away with it. You know what I'm saying? And this how they was pressing the female. And um, she was, you know, uh, I don't know if y'all know about the cases where uh, people was uh, subject to uh, anal cavity searches, like right in the middle of the street. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I got. On the program. Wow. I have some news that may help to enlighten you as well, but to my co-host, would you like to say something? Um, yeah, let me go yeah, ahead I'll and just, uh, um, give me just a second, Johanna, and I got to fix the board. Uh, give me a second. It may, Q&AQ is clear. It may mute you, um, but let me unmute you. Where is Johanna? Here's your, oh, you're unmuted, Johanna. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank the caller again. He has been providing valuable information to Black Talk Radio Network for because he's right there at ground zero of what's going on. So I just want to say I appreciate how he's called in to the different shows to uh, provide us with information. That's all I had. Um, We are going to forego the first break and just take a break at the top of the hour. But go ahead, Max. Um, Johanna, would you want to say something? Can you all still hear me? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Yeah, just to go to his point, uh, towards the caller's point about – and Max, the question you asked about in Milwaukee itself, you know, <clears throat> the uh, the stories were coming out in the early 2000s as, as uh, manufacturing was leaving the city. And uh, there was not only stories about the jobs that were leaving, but also about infant mortality in the city. The United States um, is, is ranked with countries like Bosnia and Bulgaria, like the top for, you know, like in the 40th and 50th place in the on the planet of places as far as infant mortality. And these cities like Milwaukee are definitely cities that are bringing those numbers down because of the way that they left with jobs. They left with, with money. They left with opportunities for people. And you start to see the destabilization of the communities. You know, it's, it's just another factor in, in an ongoing genocide. Uh, the A.O. Smith Corporation that was mentioned was a huge manufacturing uh, powerhouse. When, at one time, A.O. Smith was building like the, the chassis, like the undercarriage for vehicles for nearly every American-made passenger car, period, all brands. So you're talking about millions and millions of chassis. I, I think I saw something uh, looking into this at one point where they were saying, like one of their taglines or one of their advertisements or something used to say something like uh, they would they produce 10,000 10, cars a day or, or something to that effect. So they were making major, uh, uh, you know, job, making a major impact on the economy overall. And then Briggs & Stratton is another company that was up there, another huge operation that just went away into the countries where they went originally leaving these shores they increased the economies over there, obviously, and helped those people raise their standard of living and all of that. But then to turn around and bring that stuff back in, insourcing it under the cover of media darkness, nobody knows anything about it, but then they create these contracts with prisons, and private prisons in particular, 
to have people doing these same kinds of jobs while locked up for near free or free this is the whole premise of this program talking about modern day slavery you have a company like A.O. Smith that can leave the country and go to China and then a couple years later say well we could make even more money instead of shipping steel to China and then bringing back the finished product over here we could just send the materials to the prisons where we got a captive audience and like the advertisements they used to put out and we've reported on this program will say you got a captive audience that never has daycare problems and can't take sick days and is never looking for this and never doing that this is totally this is the best workforce you know the best kept secret in the workforce so come on down to Corrections Corporation of America we'll take care of your manufacturing needs and so 13th Amendment slavery going on right now man indeed it is and as I said earlier they've called out the National Guard and set in a curfew they always call out the National Guard when people try to fight back for their rights and then they demand people be peaceful and you hear the news talking about what do we need to do to make this peaceful again what you need to do is end slavery and you know it's amazing but the most important information I was able to to uh, glean out of this came from a child or young man out in Wisconsin uh, I'm going to read parts of two articles to you uh, it starts with mo the title of the first one is most of Wisconsin's black neighborhoods are jails that sounds terrible doesn't it well forward thinking and conscientious Middleton high school student Louis Blank was a high school student has spent a lot of time dedicating himself to research on racial disparities in Madison and throughout the state. His investigations have unearthed plenty of disappointing disparities, but what he most recently found made him sick to his stomach. Of the 56 black neighborhoods in Wisconsin, 31, 55% are jails. Further, Almost every single black neighborhood in the entire state of Wisconsin is either a jail or low-income housing. Blank recently made out his findings in a series of maps, that re which is available right now on New Abolitionist Radio, that reinforce the dismal state of African-American men in Wisconsin. The impetus, impetus of all of the research came to Blank at the beginning of the year when he started checking out the racial dot map that places one dot per person on a map colored by race. Blank started to compare the images on the racial dot map to images on Google Maps and other online resources. As I researched, he be I began to find these isolated black neighborhoods in the middle of nowhere on these maps in almost every state, Blank tells Madison 365, I started matching them to Google, Google Maps imagery. I checked the addresses. I double-checked, triple-checked. Blank has made a passion for social racial justice since he first started attending Young, Gifted, and Black, YGB, protests at the beginning of last year, specifically after the death of Tony Robinson. Now, I want to read some of the things that he discovered. As I said, the map that he uh, has developed is there and is available for you to look at. Here we go. The following is every black neighborhood in Wisconsin. A black neighborhood is uh, a certain area where the majority of residents are African Americans. Using the racial dot map, the website that places one dot on a U.S. map for every American, it is possible to find each and every black neighborhood in the state. So every white person is represented by a blue dot and every black person is represented by a green dot and so on. Now, for Lake Correctional Institution, we find ourselves in another white Wisconsin town surrounded by other white Wisconsin towns adjacent to a majority black jail. The city limits of Fox Lake have a black population of almost 15% and a male population of 66%. You can guess where that's coming from. 
Madison, Wisconsin is one of the most racially disparate cities in the country. It has a higher black child poverty rate, 75%, than Chicago, 51%, and New Orleans, 42%. It also has a higher black unemployment rate, 25.4% than Atlanta, 22%, and Detroit, 22%. Milwaukee's general residential black neighborhood, black medium uh, household income in the city is a mere 41% of white medium household income, known as the most segregated urban area in America. Jails are included separately because jail dwellers could come from any part of Milwaukee metropolitan area, which is 77% white. Yet these jails are almost all black. Wacom Corrections Institute, Wacom Senior High is 0.6% black, which represents the general population of the town. But if you could include everyone within the city limits, including prisoners, the demographics soon jump to 11.1%. So he comes up with this conclusion. See the correlation? Almost every single black neighborhood in the entire state of Wisconsin is either a jail or low-income housing. Of the 56 black neighborhoods in Wisconsin, 31% are jails. On top of this, 21, 38% are apartment complexes, Section 8 housing, or both. Two are homeless shelters, and one is a job course center. The only one left is Milwaukee General Residential Black Neighborhood, which isn't necessarily thriving either. It's so bad that of the 20 Wisconsin cities that with the highest percentage of their population being black, 13 of the 20 are that way solely due to having a prison. Of course, to say the majority of Wisconsin black neighborhoods are jails isn't the same as saying the majority of Wisconsin black people are in jail. But Wisconsin does happen to rank worse than any other state uh, in that respect, too, with one in every eight black men locked behind bars. 41% of inmates in Wisconsin jail are black, despite black people making up only 6% of Wisconsin's population. This is completely disproportional to the crime rate and drug usage rate, which has been statistically proven to be near equal between blacks and whites. This is a bombshell right here. Like, all of these different neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, are just jails. And if they're not jails, they're projects. This is what you call a farm where yeah. the police go in and farm people out. Yeah. One in every eight black men is locked behind bars there. Like catfish farm, you know, slave catching ponds. That's what they are, man. They they deprive uh, areas of resources. And, you know, Johanan yeah. was talking about the jobs, and I heard that lady that I don't like very much. In fact, I hate her. Hillary Clinton promising millions of jobs and Donald Trump doing this, millions of jobs. Them jobs ain't coming back. Come on now. They ain't coming back because they enjoy slave labor and they getting some good slave labor overseas. Okay. And they're not coming back. And I think the caller, when he called in the BTR news from that area, and let's not forget Milwaukee County is the worst county in Wisconsin. Okay, that's where all this is going down at. But like he had mentioned the other day, if they ain't outsourcing, they insourcing. What does that mean? They moving these jobs to prisons. 
prison slave labor wake up people slavery has never been abolished we're going to these certain areas man the people gonna to have to come together man they gonna to have to create their own jobs and their own income and whatnot but because the system it, all it's doing is just targeting us man it seemed like they ramping it up to me you know um in Wisconsin, blacks are arrested at a 10 to 1 ratio. For every one white person is arrested, there's 10 black people. And it's only 6% that make up that entire population. Now, that would be shocking even in the equal population distribution. But as I said, we're only, there's only 6% of the population there. So that gets you 10 to 1. And let me point out something else. Wisconsin has one of the largest bank budgets in the entire country for its Department of Corrections. California leads the way followed by New York, and just about tied for third place is New Jersey and Wisconsin. Wisconsin just put in a request for $2.5 billion for their prisons. Now, in contrast, here in South Carolina, their yearly budget, which is about the same population, same size, is only half a billion dollars, $500 million. Apparently, Wisconsin needs five times that much. Well, one of the things about the city itself that, uh, you know, it all goes hand in hand, everything we're talking about with this. And hopefully the the listeners, you know, both now and in the future listening to the podcast, you know, can continue to put together the pieces that paint the picture that tells the true story of what's going on. And we still have got many, many pieces that we're not even able to provide and, and providing in the time frame we have tonight. But this is surely enough for you to see, you know, the the basics of what's going on. And one other factor in all of this is that the city of Milwaukee has had a police force for over 120 years that has only had one incident ever where they were found or even charged, not even found guilty, charged with wrongdoing. So uh, the, the information I had, I actually had made a post about this back in 2014. Um July 6, 1885, the Milwaukee Board of Fire and Police Commissioners met for the first time. In 129 years of policing the city of Milwaukee, there has only been one justified shooting ruling against a police officer. That was in 2005. And that case was, I mean, take it for what it's worth, but that case was a white kid, a uh, college-age student, who was killed by police, and that, that guy's father had the resources uh, to keep fighting and fighting and putting money into it and putting his time and put his devoted his life to it and finally got a court uh, got a court settlement with them but actually had the officer that did it charged and that's the first time any cop has been charged with wrongdoing in 129 years I mean I don't know how you could get much more of a plantation mentality ingrained in generation after generation after generation of people born in the community, people that come and move into the community and see how everybody else is zombied out and don't get no justice and don't expect any anytime soon. When we said Ferguson is America on this program, when the news that started coming out of Ferguson painted a picture that we had already seen painted in several other cities around the country, and we just put our foot in the sand, we drew the line in the sand right there, we put up the abolitionist flag right there and said, damn it, that's it. We can't keep saying that these are isolated incidents in individual cities or this is what's happening here or this is what happened to this person. No, the whole country is affected the same way. Ferguson is America. Milwaukee is Ferguson. 
It's the same thing going on everywhere. The plantation continues on into today. Like you said, you are farming these people. This is domestic destabilization of communities. We talked about the jobs, the job base being removed. Basically, when they moved these jobs into the northern industrialization movement and pulled all those former slaves and slave families up out of the south and drew these black folks on up to the north with manufacturing jobs and then dissipated all of those jobs and had those Negroes moved into state-sanctioned plantation communities all over the country so they all could benefit from generating billions and billions of dollars of revenue off of incarcerating those very same people. In places like Milwaukee, in places like Max has told us, all these different states, Iowa, Idaho, North and South Dakota, you're talking about 1% of the entire state population possibly being black folks and 40, 50, 70, 80% of the prison populations in those states reflected by black faces. Man, let me stop because it, the truth so is there. It's easy to understand. People can't get it. You create a situation through mass incarceration where people fall into desperate, hopeless poverty. Crime is bred when people are in poverty. Poverty is the number one reason for poverty, uh, I mean, for crime is poverty. So this crime is bred, and you hunt these people, and you farm them like animals to put into your schemes, $2.5 billion annual prison schemes, and make your money and your jobs there. And you don't think anything's going to happen to them after two or three generations? They're going to fall into complete disrepair. The, complete hopelessness with no light at the end of the tunnel because you've been using them like goddamn cattle. Dude, you can't change this without addressing these issues. You can't change, uh, you can't address uh, crime without addressing poverty, which is going to lead us into our next uh, story coming up. Uh, I guess we'll do it after the break. In the meantime, we'll go on to a couple more comments here on what's happening with Wisconsin, and then we'll talk about Bill Clinton afterwards. Mm-hmm. Got to talk about the Clintons in this circumstances because they put this stuff into play. I mean, literally, they put it into play. And now they're talking about how they want to end it. You don't want to end mass incarceration. You don't have any plan whatsoever to do so. That is the bread and butter of this U.S. system right now. The gold bars in vaults are black bodies right now, and each one of them are worth a fortune. In New York, a teenager is worth $353,000 a year. An adult is worth about $90,000 a year. That's the value on your toes when they lay you in that bed in a cell. Well, just even aside from that, as far as the value of the people when they actually get incarcerated, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars per municipality for right. the terrorization of the citizens that aren't even before they long before they even end up in the jail system. Ferguson is America. Again, when they when they gave us the minutes from the city council meeting in the city of Ferguson and they talked about how by the time Michael Brown was shot and killed, how the city revenue had gone from one million dollars a year roughly that was being generated off of traffic tickets and arrest warrants and whatnot over quality of life infractions to they had a city council meeting where some of the city council members were bringing in ideas and other cities were using plans and uh, putting plans in place to do um, community service to work off fines and work off penalties and whatnot for, for whatever type of frivolous you know infractions they had been charged with in the first place and the city council meeting minutes 
show where the city manager and the mayor and other high-ranking officials within the city council shot those ideas down and told the police chief to go and generate revenue from writing more tickets. And the police chief said, Sieg Heil, and gave that sit, put that hand up, and then went out there and send them race soldiers and proxy racists right on out into the community. And you went to a city that had, they said, 27,000 residents in the city of Ferguson. So if you do just even the most rudimentary math, you got to understand out of 27,000 citizens, you probably got two or 3,000 that's elderly that ain't going nowhere. You probably got another two or three thousand that's adults of driving age that, that choose not to drive, and you probably got five thousand children and people that ain't even old enough to drive. So, best case scenario, you may have what fifteen thousand people in the town that are driving uh, licensed drivers or whatever people that's driving around, and you're talking about a city that's in a suburb of a major city. So, Ferguson and all those cities all around Jennings whose police department was shut down where Darren Wilson came from for being racist, patently, patterns and practice and patently racist, shut down by the city citizens because they was tired of that of that police office being as racist and terroristic as it was. It was disbanded. So when you have these cities doing these kind of things, they're generating millions of revenue. By the time Michael Brown was killed, they had gone from $1 million to $3.2 or $3.4 million in just two years from ramping it up on the people. And those people were not only getting raped over the coals, raked over the coals in Ferguson, they were getting destroyed in every little town and burg up and down the highway leading from their suburb into the city of St. Louis where all the jobs are. So it's the same thing going on in cities all over the country. Where I live in Kansas City, you got 10 or 12 cities that surround the metropolitan city of Kansas City itself where the jobs are. And if people are traveling up and down these highways and these city streets, all day, every day, I see it every single day of the week. People come to my job and tell me I got pulled over again today. People are constantly going in and out of my job, going to court in these little cities to fight these little charges and these tickets. And these. Are, this is generating billions and billions of dollars all over the country in addition to the prison slave labor once they get locked inside. People, this is police state problems. You know, um, you mentioned Jennings and... Ferguson, and that just reminded me of a story I reported on this week about the 13 cities, or excuse me, the class action lawsuit that has been filed against 13 cities in that county, St. Louis County in Missouri, over debtors' prisons. Now, I, right. I, I haven't had a chance to look at the lawsuit and the arguments that are presented in the court filings, but as I stated on my on, on my program, BTR News, whoever filed this lawsuit is going to lose. Why are they going to lose? Because when I go to the Missouri Constitution, as I stated on my program, we did yep. here on New Abolitionist Radio for an entire year. It might have been over a year where we went through each state constitution. Now, I found in Missouri's constitution this week, and when I looked this week, that it has a, a section in there for debtors' prisons. And it goes something like this. Debtors' prisons shall be abolished except for in the cases of fines and levies. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. It's just like the 13th. 
You know, yep. that exception clause. So, in fact, debtors' prisons are legal. If they have given you a ticket and a fine and you didn't pay it, they can put you in the jail until you pay it because there's an exception in the Constitution. You know, we found out the same thing in uh, Wisconsin doing the America, uh, Ferguson is America series. Their Constitution says, and this was uh, published August 25, 2015, and it was la- their amendment was last amended at the April 2015 election. So they're aware recently that it says this. Declaration of Human Rights. Slavery prohibited. Section 2. There shall be no neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in this state otherwise than for the punishment of a crime where the party shall have been duly convicted. That's the Wisconsin State Constitution right now. Well, Scotty is right. Uh, there's several states that are uh, that are just saying it blatantly, just like you said, with the exception is there. I think part of, uh, to your point, though, with that, I think part of what they're attempting to do is keep pushing with the momentum that they got from the uh, the, the civil settlement that they were able to get for <coughs> citizens. Um, I think they said it was somewhere around 2,000 people that were a part of the settlement we reported on here, like, last month from that same region that got like $5 million uh, for these people or whatever in Jennings. Um, so, I mean, I think they're just trying to build on that, on that mm-hmm. momentum, but you're right. The state, uh, the, the, the federal government banned debtors prisons, but then, you know, left it to states to interpret, they stepped down from it and left it to states to interpret it as they chose. And many of them did put in place exceptions and, and, you know, certain conditions by which it would still be, Allowed and Missouri is definitely one of those. So, you know, but this is the type of awareness. Yeah, this is the type of awareness that people have to have of what's going on in their locality and not just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to this because you could be caught up in something that would destroy your life. You just think that it's we just don't hear ranting and raving, but you could really go legitimately to prison. You could legitimately go to prison. Indeed, this is the smoking gun, I think, or one of the smoking guns. When you see that the 13th Amendment of the Federal Constitution has the exception clause, that's already a bombshell. But then you look and you see so many states not only duplicated it, but kind of fine-tuned it to fit what they wanted it to be. Let's see, how can we keep slavery going? I know, if I'm in Georgia, contempt of court. If I'm in Missouri, we can do it for debtors' prisons. If I'm in Wisconsin, any crime. So each of these states and their legislators had to come up with these ideas to put them into their constitutions, which stand to this day. Same thing in Illinois and Indiana. Uh, Reverend uh, Ajabu, for example, who ran for Congress on an abolitionist platform in Indiana, was fighting to take that out of their state constitution. These are the smoking guns. Well, there was a report we did on here as well. I remember from uh, the Brennan Center for Justice. Before you finish, how about we take that break for a couple minutes over? Yes, top of the hour. And we'll finish it when we come back. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages.
Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. And we are back. I don't know, Max. You might have uh, muted yourself. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, did, I did exactly a, that. Uh, let yeah, me go well, ahead. Back to this radio. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, the call in number is 641 715 3660. 641 715 3660. The participant code is 549 032 pound. If you want to chime in with a question or comment, we love hearing from our listeners. Hit star six and one. And with that said, uh, we do have 414 who wants to share some more information with us. Go ahead, 414. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, <clears throat> build on the conversation with you guys. Uh, while all of this is going on, uh, the national basketball team, the Milwaukee Bucks, is uh, rebuilding a new stadium in the downtown area in here. And um, the what's the going narrative um, like on the radio stations because I'm not connected to anybody that I know that may be involved in the reconstruction of that but uh, black people not getting the jobs <laughs> you know what I'm saying so it's kind of like you know the same narrative but also what you see is um, I'm really close to the downtown area so uh, a few years ago my barber told me he's like man you see these bike lanes down here and excuse my language, but he was like, man, niggas don't ride bikes like that. Who you think that's for? So what you have here is like, it's a bunch of money in this city, man. You know what I'm saying? But it's just, we don't, people that look like me don't have it. Or, you know, it's not being distributed in that way. And that's, I just wanted to add that. It's gentrification, brother. You're absolutely right. That is how... Uh, Q&A queue is cleared. Just like they did in Ferguson, uh, the day Mike Brown died, you saw all these white construction workers there in this black neighborhood where they had outsourced the uh, labor to bring them in. And uh, they witnessed this killing. So this is uh, how institutional racism works. And we've seen with all these Department of Justice investigations state by state, whether it be Ohio, whether it be uh, Cleveland, Ohio, or Detroit, or in New Orleans, or uh, in Ferguson, or even in Milwaukee, that this is a pattern and practice that is pushing people to revolt and to riot. And I would hope that one day, instead of doing it every couple of months, a different city do it, imagine if every city did it simultaneously. That would be the beginning of the end, I would think. One of those things, of, an example of that is going to happen September 9th. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the, being that Wisconsin has 37 prisons right now, that would be a huge asset towards the prison work strike scheduled for September 9th uh, of this year. We're asking that all prisoners uh, in juvenile detention facilities, in jails, wherever you may be locked up, to stop working. Don't make goods and services. Don't make beds. Don't wash dishes. Don't work at Verizon call centers in the factories in California. Don't fight fires out there in uh, California at $2 a day. Don't do anything for at least the next month and watch what happens.
So if you're listening and you know people who are incarcerated at this time, please inform them September the 9th, uh, a national prison work stoppage begins. Max, isn't this is there a nonviolent protest? Isn't there a, a work stoppage going on right now in Texas? Yes, in Texas. In te- Texas led the way, as a matter of fact, with the work stoppers. I mean, uh, it's going the, on literally reach. right now, right now, because I actually had come across some information on it, um, and it's just not, I haven't seen it the little bit of time I have had to monitor uh, mainstream media, uh, so-called news media. Uh, I haven't even seen it come across Google News Feed. You know, which is where I usually go first to find out what's going on across the planet. And I haven't even seen one single story about the Texas prison uh, work stoppages that the enslaved people in those prisons are engaging in right now. Hmm. This is something that we reported on with the Abolitionist Daily. If you remember Wallace County, that's what caused the uprising at the at the detention center. Well, the prison, but it was being used as a detention center at that time that had room for originally 800 inmates and had been expanded to 2,800 by adding 10, what was it, 10 pods, tents, basically, open-air tents that could hold 200 beds each and added, therefore, 2,000 beds. And so they went from being an 800-person prison to a 2,800-person prison, got themselves into the, into the, uh, the honey hole, of uh, of mandatory detentions in this immigration in the border crisis that was created got a part of that 3.8 billion dollars that uh, Obama released that same year and uh, to stop the prison the prison work stoppage where they were creating the uniforms for McDonald's employees all over the world creating the plastic ware that's used in McDonald's restaurants and also processing some of the food as far as preparing the meats the frozen meats and whatnot used in their food they they decided to stop working and they called that an, an uprising and disbanded the entire prison and shipped all those people off to other locations and that prison still is vacant the uh, information, I'll post a link because you can keep up with the uh, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee uh, IWW you can keep up with them, they will have a lot of information on these things as they're going on kind of more in a local sense but yes, that was uh, it's been going on since then and, and several times throughout this year throughout uh, the state of Texas they've been staying on strike so more power to more power to well I want, I want to try to get in at least two more particular stories before our evening ends uh, do we have more than two of course and we'll share them on new abolitionist radio so the stories that we feel like you should know and we're, if we're able to provide them for you here on air please check out the website new abolitionist radio and don't forget to like the page um, the one thing is coming out is Bill Clinton. You know, of course, you've been hearing Hillary Clinton talking about uh, ending mass incarceration, and now Bill Clinton has got on top of it. And this comes from the Atlanta Black Star, and the title is Bill Clinton Calls for an End to Mass Incarceration of Americans, Ignoring His Own Role in Creating the Policy. Uh, believe me, he's not ignoring it. He's just saying anything he needs to say to get his wife elected. They have no intention of changing their relationship with these prisons. He said, it's been two decades since there was a sustained national attention to criminal justice. By 1994, violent crime had tripled in 30 years. Our communities were under assault, the former president wrote. <coughs> we acted to address a genuine national crisis, but much has changed since then. 
It's time to take a clear-eyed look at what worked, what didn't, and what produced unintended, long-lasting consequences. So many of these laws work well, especially those that put more police on the streets. But too many laws were overly broad instead of appropriately tailored, and very small number of people commit a large percentage of serious crimes. And society gains when that relatively small group is behind bars. But some are in prison who shouldn't be. Others are in for too long. And without a plan to educate, train, and reintegrate them into our communities, we all suffer. Now, I don't know who wrote this little tidbit of a speech for him to say, but these are certainly not his own thoughts. And at the same time, they echo another speech I heard last night from Donald Trump standing in a predominantly white town, 1% African-American, and making an appeal to African-Americans to vote for him while calling them thugs and gangsters and criminals. And he said that he will bring, that he's going to hire more cops and more courts and there'll be more prisons because there are so many criminals. Now, history is a synonym. It's the same crap smelled differently. And we just saw this and the results of it from 1994. And here we are in 2016 looking to the same acts as the answers. And those are not the answers. That's just continued slavery on a larger scale than it already is. Comments, fellas? I'm sorry, what was that, Matt? Bill Clinton. Any comments on his uh, advocating for the end of mass incarceration while ignoring his own participation in creating it? Yeah, because when he was confronted about it, he was like, you know, he was out there where they deserved it. <laughs> they were hocked up on crack and, and all that kind of garbage, man. No, I, I really don't have much to say about that. That Oh, man, that man. Um when they start talking about that, when they start talking that reformed garbage, just know that they ain't talking about reducing the prison slave population because too many people, slave catchers and overseers, depend on that for jobs. That's just one of the pillars of the American economy, always has been. So, you know, anything that come out of his mouth, is his, as they say, if his lips are moving, he's lying. If his lips are moving, he's lying. Well, he definitely sounded exactly like Hillary Clinton. Uh, and we remember right before the uh, Wackenhut Correction Corporation went public in 1994, she said there will be more police on the streets, 100,000 more police officers with flexibility given to local communities to determine how best to use them. We will be able to say loudly and clearly that for repeat violent criminal offenders three strikes and you're out we are tired of putting you back in through the revolving door we will also finally understand that fighting crime is not just a question of punishment although there are many dollars in the crime bill to build more prisons that was Hillary Clinton in 1994 sounding exactly like uh, Donald Trump in 2016 the most incarcerating president by the end of his first four-year term than any other president in American history, Bill Clinton. He had more in his first four years. So, there you go. Well, there you go. Uh, As you said, Bill Clinton saying whatever he needs to say to get his crooked-ass wife elected. 
Let me the see. mother and father of mass incarceration as we know it today, telling you that they plan on doing what's right for you. No, listen, yes. listen. Um, I I don't know if y'all guys picked this as one of the stories, but you know, since we do quickly run out of time, I'm just going to say it was just revealed that the Obama administration in 2014 broke the law when they gave a no-bid contract to Correction Corporation of America, gave them a billion-dollar contract, all right, the world's largest prison enslaver, a no-bid contract. The Obama administration did that, gave them a $1 billion uh, contract that broke the law in terms of federal bidding on contracts and and get this the contract has a 100% occupancy rate 100% not That's a guaranteed contract yep, yep. highly uh high, uh, it was mainly geared towards uh the border crisis which again as i said when we talk about Milwaukee if you're talking about Detroit if you're talking about South American countries, you're talking about south of the border here on the North American continent, I mean, destabilization is American policy for foreign and domestic. Destabilize people, leave them with no options. When they scurrying around like rats to survive, whether that's in their community with in, uh, murder and violence within the same race group and the same social class and, and wealth class of all the poor people or whether that's people trying to pick up and move to where they feel like even if it's bad it's better than where I'm at people coming up from Mexico and Guatemala El Salvador, Honduras all of these people are targeted and the primary reason they're able to be targeted is because don't none of these people whether you're talking about poor folks whether you're talking about mentally ill people whether you're talking about black folks, which represent the biggest section of really both mentally ill and poor, whether you're talking about illegal so-called immigrants to come here, none of these people have any political power. None of these people write the laws. The Corrections Corporation of America has given over $25 million to Democrats and Republicans on state-level elections all the way up through the presidential elections. For the last 10, 15 years, they've been building an infrastructure of political influence, and that's just the money that's over the table that you can see contributed tax, whatever, tax write-offs and all of that. We don't even know how many millions untold go under the table, in addition to the jobs that all these government officials and elected officials get when they do the evil bidding of these corporations. Once they lose their job, even if these people do one thing, that will destroy the community and the community got sense enough to vote them out the next election guess where they're going to go land with a job now at Corrections Corporation of America and go from making $100,000 as a city controller or city manager or something to making a million dollars a year as a board member with influence and connections on the inside of the political uh, sphere that they just got elected out of because they hired those people they made those connections other people that's there see that they made the leap from the public sector to the private sector and got rich. So people, don't turn your heads from it. Don't bury your head in the sand and act like you just can't do nothing about it. You need to know what's going on and plan and plot and scheme and do whatever you got to do and act accordingly to get out from underneath this. 
And it ain't going to be easy. But if you got abolition in mind, at least you know the direction. Yeah, I'm going to say we need to smash it, dismantle it. I mean, I totally agree. Yes, abolition, I totally agree that it does require uh, 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 a blow that can't be taken back, blows that will leave marks and leave licks and draw blood. I believe all of that. But at the same time, until while we're fighting to get awareness, while we're fighting to build up an army, while we're fighting to grow our ranks and continue to stand on the truth and go undisputed, and unmuted and continue to do like Scotty what you've done here and continue to do create for us outlets I mean while we're building the infrastructure on our end we need to be able to effectively participate within the current existing structure and I don't mean fixing it from the inside as in well if we just get jobs in there then we'll act right and we'll make them stop no I mean don't allow somebody to be elected in your jurisdiction that you never heard their name till you read it on the ballot just stop participating in that foolishness stop letting these people just give you two choices and you didn't pick either one of them and you think you're going to some kind of way win we have to create our own candidates then we need to support them with whatever finances we can come together with and make sure they know they got a job so they're not worried about giving into the system once they get in there they're not going to have to take orders from other people when we got a few million dollars in in their coffers where they okay I'll pass these couple laws for you but it's going to be hard for me. Well, we got your back and we got the money to show it. We're not just sitting out here with the threat of burning down buildings and tearing up and going off and embarrassing you because we're your constituents that elected you. We're going to support you. It's a good move. Local politics. You got to do it all. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, talking about local politics, uh, one of the other stories, actually two local politics other stories that we have, that I, I want to try to squeeze in I think are very important is the one about CCA and the one about the former Georgia Cobb County Juvenile Detention Facility uh, uh, Administrator who is going to jail herself along with three of our other comrades. So I'm going to try to squeeze this one out as quick as possible but this comes from the Daily Report. The title says former Cobb County Juvenile Court Workers plead Guilty to False Billing and Racketeering Case. Now if you've been following New Abolitionist Radio, you know we've been pushing for racketeering cases because it seems to be the easiest way for us to be able to get this. So here's one right here. And it says three of the four indicted former Cobb County Juvenile Court Workers have entered guilty pleas in connections with allegations that hundreds of thousands of dollars were paid on fraudulent invoices, according to Cobb District Attorney Vic Reynolds. The third guilty plea came in April 28th of this year, Reynolds said. The charges include conspiracy to defraud the state, racketeering, and making false statements. One more case is pending. The indictments allege misuse of grant funds for accountability and drug treatment court programs. (laughs) They were stealing the money from accountability and drug treatment court programs. Cobb Superior Court Judge Ann Harris sentenced the defendants to probation and ordered them to pay fines and restitutions. Grant money is not money coming out of the trees, Harris said, according to the DA's statement. You have to follow the rules with other people's money. Harris was quoted saying, I'm looking for a moral compass from anybody connected to this, and I'm not finding it. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit and read one of the other quotes, and you can read the rest on New Abolitionist Radio. It says, the latest plea came from Deborah Ponder, 48, of Marietta, who had an office in juvenile court as the part-time executive director of Reconnecting Families, a nonprofit group created to assist the court. The organization paid paid a salary of $40,000 a year from 2013 
to 2014 and $50,000 a year in 2015. She also received, through false invoices, she admitted, according to the DA statement, a little over $60,000 in grant funds from Cobb Juvenile Court between April 2013 and April 2015. The DA statement said she did not track her hours or submit timesheets. Ponder was sentenced to five years on probation in order to pay restitution of $30,000. Now, see, white privileges, white privilege right there in your face. She just robbed them for $60,000 in a place that's supposed to help people. And instead of going to jail, she and her cohorts are getting probation and have to pay back their $30,000, which she probably has quite a bit of, so that's not going to hurt them at all. But if I steal a $10 bill off a store counter, you can rest assured I'm going to spend a few years in prison. They're going to make sure of it, and God forbid anything happen to you, uh, like these high-profile extrajudicial murders, they're going to put that right out there and justify what may have been your death years and decades after something like that happened. You would pay the money, go to jail, and if they decided to kill you over a broken tail like 20 years later, that would be the reason why you died. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that, that is just what we're saying right here. It's so lopsided. That's why you have mostly black people in prison, mostly brown people in prison, because you don't put your people in prison because 95% of the prosecutors are, guess what? White. Okay. And here's the last story I wanted to squeeze in, and this is probably the most important of all, because we've been trying to tell you that this is how these companies are going to start moving. They're diversifying because the prison system itself is under attack from groups like ourselves, and they can't defend what's going on, so they need to diversify. We told you they would start moving toward immigration and jails. We've watched it unfold with our own eyes and reported on it right here on New Abolition News Radio since 2012, when the first report came out, that they were about to close down their immigration facilities for lack of people to fill them. And then suddenly everything happened and people started swarming over the border and we ended up with a $34,000 a month mandatory, uh, mandatory status, uh, status quo for immigrants in these centers. Pardon me. <laughs> Pardon me. Not uh, getting my breath there. All right, this story is about CCA. Dillon, Dilly, Texas, uh, as Central Americans surged across the U.S. border two years ago, the Obama administration skipped the standard public bidding process and agreed to a deal that offered generous terms to Corrections Corporation of America, the nation's largest prison company, to build a massive detention facility for women and children seeking asylum. Now, uh, aside, if you remember, he gave $3.7 billion towards this initiative. The four-year, $1 billion contract, details of which have not been previously disclosed, has been a boon for CCA, which in an unusual arrangement gets the money regardless of how many people are detained at the facility. Critics say the government's policy has been expensive but ineffective. Arrivals of Central American families at the border have continued unabated, while court rulings have forced the administration to step back from its original post approach to the border surge and hundreds of other detention contracts given out by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency federal payouts and fall in step with the percentage of beds being occupied. But in this case, 
CCA is paying for 100% capacity, even if the facility is, say, half full or even empty, as it has been in recent months. An ICE spokeswoman, Jennifer Alvia, said that the contracts for the 2,400-bed facility in Dilly and one for a 532-bed family detention center in Carn City, Texas, given to another company, are unique in their payment structures because they provide a fixed monthly fee for use of the entire facility regardless of the number of residents. The rewards for CCA have been enormous. In 2015, the first full year in which the South Texas Family Residential Center was operating, CCA, which operates 74 facilities, made 14% of its revenue from that one center while recording record profit. CCA declined to specify the cost of operating the center. Now, do you think CCA, the GO Group, MTC, or any of these modern-day slavers are going to allow them to shut that border down? <laughs> they ain't going to do it. It's too much slave labor coming across that border. Man, and, and then to name it, what, the family, what, the family, what, that reminds me of the Pennsylvania uh, uh, child care. Yeah, yeah Pennsylvania child care. And, and this is a prison for children. And the judge is sending these kids to prison because they're getting kickbacks under the table. It's called the South Texas Family Residential Center. Makes you sound like it's a nice home. You, you might never want to move know. into it. Not a prison, it's a home. You would <laughs> never know what they are really doing. And and then again, like you know, I think Johanan was talking about it last week, how they have now um, you know, reformatted themselves into real estate companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were mentioning in regard to the to the the uh definition of the word chattel and how it specifically uh mentions uh, anything that's like property other than real estate and uh, back in the original definition of it and just the irony of how private prisons have reestablished themselves as real estate investment trusts so saying that they shouldn't be taxed for just that fact that they are basically controlling real estate versus controlling people so they generating billions of dollars of revenue off of human trafficking warehousing humans chattel and then forcing them into labor contracts with Wall Street traded corporate entities and for the money that they're generating off of that by also taking in federal government contracts for housing this chattel they ultimately establish themselves from a corporate standpoint as a real estate investment trust so they can avoid paying taxes on that so like, this is not just this is not just a one billion dollar contract. This is a one billion tax free contract that the Obama right. administration has given to the uh, investors of CCA. This is in addition to the three point seven billion that was already issued. So now you're up to four point almost five billion dollars just towards the border in the past few years. And that money isn't solving any problems. It's creating problems and putting that money in CCA's pocket. Before Dilly, CCA's revenue and profit have been flat for five years. Yeah. It's doing what it's doing what slavery has always done 
and it's doing what slavery is continuing to do in America to those that are being so affected. It's putting a financial incentive out there, putting a bounty on the heads of all who can't pass muster. If you don't have the money or political representation to somehow wiggle your way out, you will be eventually caught up in the system. Well, we're at our 9.30 mark, and it's time for our next break. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to take whatever calls are finally left, maybe squeeze in one piece of a little bit of story more, and then we need to move into our abolitionist group file and our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. We'll be right back after these messages. Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Please and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. <clears throat> We're going to open up the lines. If we have any callers on the line, now is time to come in uh, for your, call, your comments or questions. We'd love to have you be a part of the program and share your ideas and thoughts with us. Scotty, yeah, let me give out the number again because uh, we broadcast in several different places and not always able to put the telephone numbers. So the telephone number is 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. It's star six and one to chime in. Uh, please don't wait till the last minute because there is another program coming on after New Abolitionist Radio, so we don't want to wait till the last minute. Please call in if you have any questions or comments for us. Well, there you have it. Uh, anything that you would like to cover, Scotty or Johannes, the, for our next segment? Yeah, man. Um, just going back to the last story that, that you read, I mean, again, where is the outrage on this? See, I don't look. They got me stuttering. I'm so pissed off right now. Um, I remember after George Zimmerman was found not guilty by a whack jury down there in Florida, and people were angry. And I remember President Obama coming out talking about we are a nation of law and order. All right, people want to talk about Giuliani, but they forgot Obama said the same damn thing. We are a nation of law. In order, and we must respect, you know, the court's decision and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, again, the law is only being applied to us people. They don't follow the law. Again, where is the outrage? Why isn't this national television? The, somebody in the Obama administration broke the law. The law is clear. You can't, you have to have a bidding process to give out federal contracts. 
They mm-hmm. just they just gave this contract to CCA, and it has a one hundred percent occupancy, meaning that if it's only fifty percent full, the taxpayers and that's who's paying it. This is your money, your grandchildren' money, whatever, however you want to phrase it. But still, if it's only fifty percent full, you still got to pay us like it's one hundred percent full. Look, people, we the only ones that are expected to be the law in order or the law abiding types because we see right now especially this year Hillary Clinton violated the espionage act and and um you know with her private email server they named all the different laws she violated but oh that we're not going to prosecute her you know why cuz her name ain't Max Parthas her name ain't Elijah uh Johanna and Elijah she ain't you, okay? And so I, I just don't, I don't understand why there is, well, yes, I do understand because I'm willing to bet you 99% of the population are is even, is probably not even aware of all this law breaking that's going on. And apparently many of them don't care because they ready to go out and cast a ballot for one of the biggest criminals on the planet in Hillary Clinton. So that's all I got on that. Yeah, I mean, the I'm thing is, with people who want me to vote for Jill Stein, and I'm like, until she mentions the 13th Amendment or even throws some support in the direction of the Justice is Not for Sale Act, I'm not trying to hear any of it. I'm just, I don't want to deal with it anymore with these people who have no none of our intentions in mind. And it's just lip service. You know, how can you ignore these things, ignore the 13th Amendment, ignore the Justice is Not for Sale Act, and still talk about mass incarceration? You're just another reformist as far as I'm concerned, and I'm not trying to have conversations with reformists right now. You could very well be right on point with that one. I don't know if this has been presented to her or if she's avoiding it, or I don't know what stage she's at with it. I was happy to see who her vice presidential choice was, a brother that I know has been in the activist field for long enough to to at least be able to be approached by this conversation but I was going to say to Scotty's point about the general population just being indifferent to these kind of things whenever I see different yeah whenever I see the arc you know of of news occurring news reporting 24 hour news cycle on all cable networks pushing the agenda hearing it from all these different angles, all these experts pop up, everybody gives their opinion, social media posts, goes on and on and on for however many days, and then it dies down and goes away. Whenever I see that happen with certain types of stories, and then I see real crime, major, like on the mega, on the macro scale, affecting millions of people type of incidents going on and nothing said, I see the same connection to the need for black and indigenous people's criminality to justify the terrorism of those people and their displacement and their enslavement, their kidnapping, their continued persecution, on and on and on. Black criminality drives Western capitalism ultimately. The fact that you can say black people are criminal justifies the police terrorization that we talk about on this program every week. The fact that you can say certain groups and certain people just do certain things and there's no justification there's no understanding of the elements that create these situations there's no effort to try to to fix any of the problems that continue to create these problems over and over generation after generation so I feel like people are to a point where they're so well trained 
by memes and tropes and stereotypes, ideas, concepts that were never based in truth. It was never true that American Native people that were here, well, I don't even call them American, but Native Indigenous people to this land, it was never true that they were savages. It was never true that they was eating their babies and raping the, all of this foolishness. It was never true that blacks in Africa were savages and swinging from trees and living in mud huts and doing all this crazy stuff that was popularized for hundreds of years. All of it was used to justify the, the criminal treatment and criminal theft of land and resources, including human resources, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So this is the end result of that. When you see billion-dollar contracts, no bid. And we mm -hmm. talked about Mike Epps and Cecil McCrory down in Mississippi, a black face put on a crime that involved a white man who was a legislator and a school, uh, school, whatever you call it, administrator, who was facilitating the crime that the Negro was a part of. He was paying Mike Epps pieces of the money he was getting to give the no-bid contracts out to major mm -hmm. corporations. But his face ain't a part of that because black criminality, because certain ideas are popularized. So when people see a billion-dollar contract go to the, to the government, to these private companies, they don't even think about it because, uh, well, eh, it doesn't fit a narrative that their brains only can think along the lines of. True that. True that. Scotty, anything left on this from you, brother? No, sir. All right. So I guess uh, our next step would be to move on to our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. Um, let me see if I can find it on our planning program. I put it here somewhere. Uh, just not quite sure where. In the meantime, one of you brothers uh, make some points and I'll find that. Man, I've been ranting and ranting going on and on the whole time. I've, I feel bad sometimes for how far I go into making these points. But I, I just hope that people that are listening understand we are not talking about reform. I know that has come up a couple of times because as we say here, you cannot reform slavery. You can't reform terrorism. So this is, in our opinion, and definitely my opinion, is not, this is on the same level as 9-11. You say never forget and we got to have, you know, memorials. This is on the same level as Pearl Harbor. You say never forget, and we have holidays and parades and honor the veterans and all of this. Modern-day slavery is that and worse, in my opinion, in my belief system. So I say never forget, and I say you're not getting ready to reform it. Yeah, you, you can't reform slavery. Uh, it's, it's a crime against humanity, and it cannot be reformed. Uh, I'm at some kind of delay here. Pardon me, guys. As I said, I, I can't seem to find our link from our rider of the Underground Railroad, so I just did a quick search and pulled up a new one. And uh, I'll start there from the Innocence Project. And <clears throat> this week's rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad is William D. Avery. William D. Avery was exonerated on September 21, 2010, after serving six years for a 1998 murder he did not commit, the crime. February 17, 1998, the body of Mariette Griffin, the drug addict and prostitute, was found partially clothed amidst a pile of garbage in a 
garage on North 7th Street in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She had been strangled. The investigation and conviction. In March, William Avery, who ran a nearby crack house, learned that the police wanted to talk to him and voluntarily went to police. Police contended that he acknowledged that he had been seen with her in hours preceding her death and that he had been grabbing her but could not remember anything else because he blacked out. Avery later contended that this was a fabricated statement. With little other evidence linking him to the murder, police did not, did not charge him with the murder. However, they did charge him with, the drug, with drug dealing. Avery was convicted in 1998 under narcotics charges and sentenced to 10 years in prison. In 2004, Milwaukee County authorities charged Avery reckless homicide in the death of Griffin after three prison inmates contended he had confessed to killing her. Avery was convicted on March 9, 2005 and sentenced to 40 years in prison post-conviction. April 2010, Avery wrote to the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office requesting that DNA tests be performed on a sample taken from Griffin's mouth. The DNA test excluded Avery and matched the profile of Walter E. Ellis, an accused serial killer. Ellis had been charged in September 2009 with killing seven prostitutes in Milwaukee over a 21-year period. He was linked to all seven murders by DNA tests. Meanwhile, two of the jailhouse snitches had recanted their testimony that Avery had confessed to the murder of Griffin. Avery was released from prison on May 2010, and on September 23, 2010, his conviction and sentence were vacated, and the charges were dismissed. In February 2011, Ellis pleaded no contest to the murders of seven prostitutes and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. No one has been charged with the murder of Griffin. In April 2011, Avery filed a wrongful conviction lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Milwaukee. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio welcome you to freedom, brother. Brother Avery. Salute. Dude, they were trying to pin a serial murderer's work on this guy with false statements and jailhouse snitches that get paid to say whatever you want them to say. Amazing. So that's Milwaukee County, Wisconsin? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Where uh, David Clark sat in front of Congress uh, last year and uh, on the 21st century policing uh, hearing and talking about police practices and whatnot for the for the you know for the future or whatever and sat there and said when asked about uh, criminality within the police force because to me when you're talking about convicting the wrong people and fighting to keep the wrong people in prisons you should be uh, charged with crimes your own self as an officer of the law as an oath taker not only the cops but also the prosecutors and all the people that work in the system to maintain your conviction when it has been falsely and, and erroneously secured. But when he was asked about this, his uh, response was, was to say that he, he said, uh, put uh, a few cops in jail and it, it just made him so sad, you know, that, that it ever had to happen. But he's, he's, you know, when it came down to it, he had to put a couple of cops in jail and under his watch as well. So, you know, this is the thing, man. These, these people are... Uh, even when he had to admit that he's put cops in jail. And in these kind of cases, I feel like that is the way to fix that. Put those cops in jail. Why wouldn't they put the people in? I mean, you completely, not only are you incompetent at your job, 
Like if I go to work and I can't do my job, if I suck at what I do, I'm going to get fired. There's no way around that. I'm not going to be able to just keep being there collecting a, a paycheck and I just, I'm horrible. I'm just doing it the wrong way. So you're putting the wrong people in jail while you leave the actual murderers and rapists on the streets to continue to terrorize the neighborhood. When we find out about this and we get this dude out of prison, well, you know what, Tom? Time for you to go. Here's your cuffs. Come on. That is enough of an offense against the community that you should have to serve time for that. Yes, sir. Well, again, welcome to Freedom Brother. And I picked Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just to prove those points that you just mentioned, man. This brother, uh, not brother, <clears throat> Sheriff David Clark. And uh, his rhetoric right now is a very dangerous thing. This man should not be allowed to walk around with a badge and a gun, and he shouldn't be allowed to even talk to himself, let alone the American public. And these, uh, our brothers and sisters out in Milwaukee are suffering under his rule right now, and that's what it is, a rule. Our next segment will be our abolitionist in profile, which is pre-recorded, and it's Louis Gonzaga Pinta de Gama, Louis Gama, June 28th, 1830, August 24th, 1882, abolitionist, journalist, lawyer, and poet. Before we um, play that, I just want to say, I think, I may, y'all correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first abolitionist that was active outside of USA Inc. that we have done. Is that true? I know we did a brother, but he was going back and forth between here and, and Europe. Um, we did Jamaica, uh, abolitionists out of Jamaica. We did. I know that. Okay, yes. because I, I want to, the reason I want to um, preface, uh, be, the reason I want to make these comments before I play the recording is because just like back in hundreds of years ago, slavery was largely seen as being a global phenomenon. All the European countries were were practicing it. Arab countries practicing it too. All right. Now, but that's going on today. You've heard a lot today about CCA. That's an international company. It's based here in the United States and where probably the bulk of their money comes from. But they are a global c- company. Geo Group. They just took over the entire prison slave system of Australia. Um, So, again, abolitionism, to me, it's an international fraternity or whatever we want to call it. It's it's an international phenomenon. And so that's why, you know, I hadn't before... Um, I didn't think that before we had featured uh, abolitionists out that whose work was primarily outside of the United States, but this man's story, please, outside of this, go look up this man. His story is very inspiring, and I noticed he was a poet like you, Max. <laughs> so, indeed, bro. let me go ahead and, and run that. Luis Gama, June 21st, 1830, August 24th, 1882. Abolitionist, journalist, lawyer, and poet. Gama was born in Salvador, Brazil in 1830 to his biological father, a wealthy Portuguese man, and his mother, Luisa Mahan, a revolutionary black woman from Ghana who was also an abolitionist and played a major role in a number of uprisings by the victims of slavery in Brazil. At the age of 10, 
Gama's father sold him into slavery. In 1848, Gama escaped his enslavement and was able to win his legal freedom after proving to a court that he was born free. Gama was also a writer and established an abolitionist journal called Diabo Coxo in 1864. He also began writing anti-slavery pieces for a prominent newspaper, and in 1869, he joined the editorial board of a newspaper called Radical Palestano. In 1881, Gama started a fund, Chiaxa Emancipadoro, Louis Gama, to purchase the freedom of victims of slavery. The following year, he founded the Abolitionist Center of Sao Paulo. Unfortunately, the preeminent Brazilian abolitionist life was cut short just as victims of slavery in his nation were near liberation. He died of diabetes complications. Six years later, in 1888, Princess Isabel, the Brazilian sovereign, signed the Golden Law freeing the remaining enslaved victims in her nation. By the end of his life, Gama had helped free upwards of 1,000 enslaved people and became one of Brazil's most prominent abolitionists and revolutionaries. New Abolitionist Radio salutes Luis Gama. Salute. 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 I'm smiling over here, Scotty, because, you know, his story is just beautiful. And I kind of feel a, a kinship. You, me, Johanan, and all the listeners and supporters that we have have done much of the same. Many people right now are walking free because we brought this to the forefront. There was no uh, criminal justice reform speech in the 2012 presidential uh, address to the nation. It was no mention, not one single word. And we have been pushing and pushing, and a lot of people have gotten free because of that. So we're going to keep pushing. Most certainly. And, you know, I also notice um, I'm noticing a theme among some of our an- abolitionist ancestors uh, who whose, you know, shoes. I don't know if we can feel, you know, but um, a number of them were publishers, writers mm-hmm. and what have you or spoken word artists. And I, I right. just, I, I, you know, I, that just intrigues me that so many of them, you know, were involved in that. There was only so many ways you're going to be able to get to get the word out. And I'm sure that, you know, this is common what goes through us. I mean, Scotty, you created an entire platform, several platforms, an entire network and brought together people to be able to get their voice out because you feel the passion within your own self to get your voice out. So helping to facilitate a space for others to do that, you're not unlike these people all throughout history that there wasn't another way to get the word out unless they did it themselves. Max right. the same way, you know, mm-hmm. with what you're doing with with poetry and, and spoken word, being out here in the public, the passion that you feel, you can't shut up. You can't not get involved and say what's in your heart and come up with a way to present it to the people artistically and affect their hearts like that. So it's the same thing with all of us. We all have our our way of doing it, but you can't. It's uh like the like the preachers used to say to uh, it's like the fire shut up in my bones. Like you can't not do it so you know this we're just seeing these people had the the ways that they had to do it back then whether they had to hand write bills or learn how to operate printing presses or do whatever they had to do frederick Douglass had to trick a white boy into teaching him how to read so you know 
Yes, indeed, brother. <clears throat> that that is what we do. Uh, you know, they say that history is written by the victors, but it's sung about by the poets and the singers and the songwriters. So uh, you might read the book and see a lie, but you listen to the heart and soul of a nation, which is his poets, and you'll get the truth. You know, we're still waiting for a change to come. Well, we're coming up to the end of our program, five minutes left. I guess we'll uh, go to our final comments, unless we have any uh, last-minute calls, and we only have a brief amount of time to take those. Um, no, Scotty, sir. Any line? No, sir. All right. Well, uh, would one of you brothers like to begin this evening's uh, conclusion to New Abolitionist Radio? I'll go first this week, if y'all don't mind. Um, sure. Yeah, that story, I want to keep harping on that story about the Obama administration giving Correction Corporation of America the world's largest uh, prison enslaver. I mean, the world's largest and giving and breaking the law. Somebody in the Obama administration broke the law. Now, I don't know if Mr. Barack Obama signed off on it, if it was put on his desk, but somebody broke the law just to give these slavers a no-bid, $1 billion tax-free contract. Think about that. My God, if it doesn't make you angry, I just don't know what will. I don't know what to say about you that maybe you need, you know, a heart transplant because you ain't got one. But look, people, this is real. It's going on every day. Somebody's being enslaved. And the only way that slavery is going to be abolished is if I do it, if you do it, if we do it. Okay. It took a civil war the last time and then they tricked them and put that exception clause in there. Who knows? It may take another civil war to actually end it. But, you know, I just want to stress the need that we need all hands on deck. Slavery ain't something that you just read about in the history books. Slavery is something you read about in today's headlines in the newspapers. If they're abolitionist papers, I should add that. So um, that's all I got for you. Yeah, I I just want to kind of share just a, a brief thing about what happened to me recently going to a gas station here, you know, in Kansas City. I walked into uh, walked into the gas station. It's pretty popular. They got what they call quick trips here, so it's like the big, you know, thirty pumps, and everybody just be there or whatever kind of deal. So I go walking in, and it's a black cop in full uniform, sheriff's department, working security at the front door, and he's standing there leaning on a trash can in front of the door. You know, it's fairly, you know, about waist height, so he's leaning over, just kind of writing in his notebook. And as I come walking up from the pump. You know, he locked eyes and gave me the cold, hard stare of, you know, you know, Negro, I'm watching you. You know, whatever. I'm just like, damn, I'm just going in the store. So I walked in or whatever and did whatever I did. Well, I'm standing in the line, though. This tattooed up, goateed, hillbilly-looking whatever biker dude comes walking in, open carry, revolver in the holster, hanging on his hip like he Yosemite Sam. Do you know that Negro kept looking at his... I was standing in the standing at the door. I could see the whole thing go down. Dude came strolling in like he ran the damn place, and that Negro did not look up from his book, did not make eye contact. That white man came in there and got whatever he got and walked back out that door like, nigga, you better not look at me. And the Negro did not. And when I walked out, I looked at that Negro again like, wow. And he just looked at me and looked right back down at his book. Another brother came walking up towards me. 
he looked up at him like he was like he was suspecting him or something. So I'm just saying this to say, like, yeah, we got problems with the system. We got problems with some folks in power who do not look like us. But we got problems with people that look like us too. The proxies that's out here facilitating the modern day slave plantation operation willingly every day. So peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors, even if they look like me. Indeed, brothers. Um, I'm going to keep it real brief and real short. I uh, just want to say for the people out there, our prayer warriors continue to pray for our daughter, Alicia. Uh, she's gone back in for more chemotherapy, and she's going to try She's going to make it through this, and uh, we appreciate those prayers that you're all putting out there to the universe for her well-being and uh, continued health. And uh, I guess I should say what I normally say every week. It's going to make sense one day to a lot of people. <clears throat> Abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims